revelation while Nita was away. I actually sent it to her by text. I said, I agree with God. It's not good that man should live alone. <laughs> but I did lose a few pounds, which was one of my goals while she was away. Left to yourself, you do all sorts of crazy things diet-wise. Anyway, it's good to be with you this morning. And um, what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at two, two types of truth. Oh, I'm sorry. Two, tri- two types of truth. The one I'm going to focus on more than any is, is really uh, positional truth. Um, but we're also going to look at vital truth. And coming into the fullness of what God has for us is making the vital equal with the positional. Let me explain what I mean, positional. In the second chapter of Ephesians, it actually tells us that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's a positional truth. That means that just as Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father, our position is there. We, we, do also, we say all sorts of things that have no biblical reality. People, when they pray, they say, I'm bombarding the gates of heaven. Well, why would you do that when you're seated with Christ in heavenly places? The day will come when we really are there, but our position is that. A verse that is so powerful, Colossians 2 verses, Colossians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, for in him, that in, is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That just simply means that all the fullness of God the Father, God the Word or Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwell bodily in Jesus. And then the next verse, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. That means he has all authority over our adversary and the minions who work for the adversary. So we're complete in Christ. So what I'm talking about today, I've titled this Jesus Heals Hearts. And the overview is this. When we repent and believe the gospel and are born again, Jesus completely heals our hearts and makes us new. I mean, his work on the cross is complete. And then the second point of this overview is to maintain heart health, and I'm not talking about the blood pump, I'm talking about your inner being, to maintain heart health, we must guard our hearts daily. Now, Paul did a great job talking about guarding our hearts last week. I'm going to say some other things about that as well, but it's so important that we understand we cannot live according to our natural circumstances. Positional truth is what God has legally done for us. Because when Jesus came to bear my sins, to to bear my anguish of soul, to bear my sicknesses, that was a legal act. It satisfied divine justice because God created Adam, and Jesus is called the last Adam. And the last Adam, Jesus came and restored us to a position of wonderment in the presence of Almighty God. In other words, he does a job completely. 
So he's done it. What we need to do to maintain heart health is to guard our hearts on a daily basis. Now, let me get this thing set up. To, sorry. I want to talk a minute just about the human composition. Yes, I'm, I'm re we're recording. Sorry. <laughs> I'm being biblical sitting on this stool. The fifth chapter of Matthew, fourth chapter of Matthew says, And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, So I'm seated. I may get up, but I'm seated for now. The human composition, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, a portion of that scripture, I pray your whole spirit, soul, and body will be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So spirit, soul, and body. Many years ago, I learned this, and this is the great way to see it. I am a spirit. I have a soul, which is mind, will, and emotions, and I live in a body. This body's not me. This body's not me. I'll know, I've heard multiple times at many funerals, people walk up to a casket and they say, it just doesn't look like him. Duh, it's not him. It's his remains, his corpse. So at our innermost being is the spirit, our spirit. We are a spirit. Say this after me. I am a spirit. I have a soul. And I live in a body. Many years ago, I heard the body described like an earth suit. Like you got, if you're going to space, you've got to have a space suit to live. Well, this body is our earth suit. I am a spirit. I, am a, I have a soul, and I live in a body. And the soul is very important because that's the part that gets in our way if it's not renewed to the things of God, our mind, our will, and our emotions. Um, and then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 says this. It says that my spirit, your spirit, is the hidden person of the heart. So my inner being has a hidden part. It's called the spirit. My inner being also has an unhidden part. It's called the soul. And you, however you go, if you choose to go spiritually, then you live a spiritual life. If you choose to go naturally or carnally, then you live a carnal or a natural life. And I, I don't want to develop this too much because it's not the message of the day. But Paul said, writing to the church at Rome, that we need to renew our minds. We need to renew our minds into God's way of thinking. And so meditation in the Scripture, hearing the Word preached, prayer, the various things that God has given us, and then acting on what God says, that's what brings our soul into line with our spirit. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Uh, Paul wrote this in Romans 1, verse 9. This is the English Standard Version. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Paul said, I serve God with my spirit. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the human spirit. I am a spirit. 
I have a soul and I live in my body. And so Paul said, I serve God with my spirit. My spirit. Our serving God originates from our spirit. It will not and cannot originate in the soul. See, so much that happens in Christendom, in the church, is soulish. It's emotion-driven. And it's not, it's not word or spirit-driven. You know, I don't always feel good. I don't always feel like God is happy with me. And he's probably not all the time. But I don't always feel like he loves me. But I can't go with my feelings. My feelings are fickle. Somebody put it this way. One day, fact, faith, and feelings were walking along on a wall. As long as faith kept his eyes on the truth or the facts, he was able to navigate that wall. But when his, when his eyes got on his feelings, then he fell off the wall. Feelings are fickle. Uh, and we have to learn to live from the position that Jesus has put us in. We're complete in Jesus. He didn't do a halfway job on the cross. He did a complete job. Um, we must be rooted and grounded in Scripture, and we must know the person of the Holy Spirit and know how to hear His voice if we are to grow spiritually. You, coming to church does not make you grow. It can be a great benefit in growth. We should be here. But it's when we, I like to put it this way, faith comes by hearing the word, faith grows by acting on the word. Faith grows by putting the word into practice. And it's great to be able to come and to hear what the word of God is and even be excited about it and say, that's awesome, Paul, you brought a great word today. But the proof of the pudding is in the action out there, living it in your home, in your personal life. So we must be rooted and grounded in Scripture, and we must know the person of the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a, a mighty man many years ago, he, 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 he has written so many things. And two quotes, if we were really and accurately know Jesus, we must know the Scriptures. If we were really and accurately know Jesus, we must know the Scriptures. And then he said this, nobody ever outgrows Scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. Within the scripture, there is a balm for every wound, a salve for every sore. The Bible in the memory is better than the Bible in the bookcase. Now, I, I, was, I was a dirty, rotten sinner up until I was 22 years old. And somewhere along the way, somebody told me that you need to make sure that you never put anything on top of the Bible. And I had a headboard on my bed, and so I would come in, I would come in the house sometimes, tiptoeing through, more drunk than sober, but I would also, I would always make sure that there was nothing on top of my Bible, because I didn't want to go to hell. Now, I mean, that's crazy, that's insanity, but that's the reality of the deception that I was living under. Thank God for the Bible, but it needs to be in us. We need to let it read us as we read it. Now, let me give you the biblical description of an unregenerate heart. Unregenerate means not renewed, not born again. The heart of one who has not been born again through faith in Christ. This is what Jeremiah says about that heart. I'm reading from four different translations. 
the New King James Version says the heart. Now remember, this is, a, this is the condition of the inner being of a person who does not know Jesus, has never been born again. Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again or you cannot see, which literally means you can't comprehend the kingdom of God. And then he said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. To be born again means that there is something that transforms you, and that is faith in Jesus, repentance of faith. I'll say more about that in a minute. But here's Je Jeremiah 17, 9 in the New King James Version. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The C Christian Standard Bible says the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Now, there's no natural cure. There is a supernatural cure called the new birth. And then the Good News Translation says, Who can understand the human heart? There's nothing else so deceitful. It is too sick to be healed. And then the New Revised Standard Version says, The heart is devious above all else. It is corrupt and perverse. Who can understand it? Now, I, I came to this realization many years ago. Every human being is capable of doing the worst imaginable things. If we get off track, then we are capable, you know, uh, we're capable of doing heinous things. We see heinous things happening around the world on a regular basis. It's been happening for centuries. I mean, when, when you come to a heinous thing, it was the religious leaders of Israel who put Jesus on the cross. That's a heinous thing. So, the heart is deceitful above all else, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But Jesus said this. We, we've looked at Isaiah 61. I'm going to look at Luke 4. But there's, I put Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, in one sentence. Jesus brings life to broken people and then enables them to bring life to other people. That's Isaiah 61, verse 4. Jesus brings wholeness and life to me, and he enables me in that as I walk with him to bring wholeness and life to other broken people. When Jesus' uh, ministry began in the fourth chapter of Luke, he went into the temple as was his custom, or the synagogue as was his custom in Nazareth. And he stood up to read, and they brought him the scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he came to uh, Isaiah 61, and this is what Jesus said in verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which is the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was instituted in the Old Testament when everybody in debt would go free. And so we were indebted to God, and Jesus came to set the captives free. That's what frees us up. It's not going through religious circumstances, excuse me, religious um, practices that sets us free. It's Jesus impacting our heart that sets us free. 
When Jesus heals the brokenhearted, he does a complete job. See, Jesus is not the founder of a great world religion. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Religion tries to change us from the outside in through Eastern meditation and through demonic practices. Jesus makes us new from the inside out. Jesus starts at the heart. The heart of the matter is the heart. I remember when I was born again, December 13th, 1971. He did a work in me. I went from debauchery to desiring more of the one who had changed my heart. But let me tell you something. My heart changed before my actions changed. You know, there's a lot of things we do that are not healthy, and in that sense, they're probably sinful. But I remember I, I continued smoking for about three or four months. And I, 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 I switched positions. I'd moved back to Tennessee from Michigan. And um, I went into my boss because I, I was concerned about his soul. Now, this, this is going to sound crazy to you, but it didn't seem incongruous to me. I went in and said, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. He said, fine. So I sat down, smoked, lit up a cigarette in his office, and proceeded to tell him about how Jesus had changed my life. He was a very kind man, and he eventually did get saved. But he just said, thank you, that, that's, that's a great story. But he said, if you, he said, if you want me to really believe you, then show me how your God can help you get rid of those cigarettes. That little cigarette became two miles long. And it was the beginning of conviction about that. So our heart changes before we completely change. And that's something that we have to understand. Can, can you be born again and still sin? Well, of course you can, but it's not God's plan. God, if we will allow him to do in us what he wants to do in us, then sinning becomes less and less and less. It's no longer a practice of sin. It's a stumble rather than a headlong intention to sin. He gives us a new, at the new birth, he gives us a new, clean, sinless spirit. And he gives us his spirit. He makes us right with God. In spite of ourselves, he makes us right with God. And we're going to look at a scripture in a few minutes that demonstrates that. Because he gives me a brand new, clean, sinless spirit, and he gives us his spirit, and he makes us right with God. What does that mean? It means that at all times, after we are born again, there is a part of us that is in agreement with God, united with God, and that is our born-again, recreated human spirit. In other words, we have agreement in our spirit with everything God does and says. And when our minds are renewed to what God does and says, then what happens is, is that we bring ourselves into Agreement and my spirit and my soul are lined up and my body just follows suit. I can give you testimony after testimony after testimony personally. But suffice it to say, as you grow, as you meditate in the scripture, as you pray, as you call out to God, a lot of people say, I don't know how to pray. You know, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, 
they never asked him, teach us how to heal the sick. The question they had was, Lord, teach us to pray. If you don't know how to pray, then here's the, how, the way you pray. Lord, I love you. I need you. Show me, Lord, how to pray. And then begin to communicate and talk with him. And that plus meditation in the scripture and having fellowship with individuals of like precious faith, then what happens to us is that we begin to see those things that have beset us fall by the wayside. But it's very important to realize if you're born again, there's a part of you that is pure. It's always in agreement with God. Now, Ezekiel prophesied in the 36th chapter, I'm going to give you a portion of two verses, verses 26 and, and 27. God speaking through Ezekiel said, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you, and I will put my spirit within you. And then Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. I'm not going to read from Jeremiah because Hebrews chapter 8, almost verbatim, uh, says what Jeremiah said. And those prophetic words in Jeremiah chapter 31 find their fulfillment in Christ. And here's what Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 says. Behold, this is God speaking. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with you, not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, says the Lord. So God doesn't lead us around by, by the hand. The new covenant states that's not the way he leads us. He leads us from within. And he says, this is the covenant that I will make after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will uh, write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. All shall know me. All of his people shall know me from the least to the greatest. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now that's being brought into a position in God to where he has mercy, that he uh, is merciful to our unrighteousness. And he says our sins and lawless deeds he will remember no more. Now let me tell you something about God. God is omniscient. Omniscient means he, he knows everything. He knows everything past. He knows everything present. And God knows the future. And he cannot forget the dog that I used to be. What does it mean? It says your, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. He means I will never bring it up as an accusation against you because God loses no knowledge. He knows everything. And so the most amazing thing is God knows how bad I was worse than me knows how bad I was, and he accepts me on the basis of my faith in Jesus Christ. That's a position that is just phenomenal. What God does in our being, inner being, what God does in my inner being and in your inner being is prepares us to be his agents on the earth. Now, I know that may be hard for many of us to think about. Paul has told us about his fear of public speaking. 
So God says, I'll fix that. I'm going to make you a public speaker. And so we, we can hear that God restores us for the sake of us being able to restore people, and it kind of scares us. But, you know, if we'll just walk with God every day, calling upon him, studying his word, and I, I don't want to make that an arduous thing. It becomes a delight. I mean, you have to put the flesh aside. You don't always feel like reading the Bible. You don't always feel like praying. But as you develop that discipline and do it as a life-giving thing, then things begin to change in your life, and you're being prepared and equipped to be able to bring other people to wholeness. Now, this is the passage that I never really put this two, two and two together, but there is such a, uh, there's so many overtones in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17, 21, to remind us of Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. I want to read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. This is just one of those passages that, that I begin to meditate on Back in 1971, 72, it just, it became such a real understanding for me. Verse 17 says, if anyone, can I see the hand that's included in anyone? Is everybody here anyone? Anyone. If anyone is in Christ, in Christ is our new position. I'll say more about that in a minute. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. It doesn't mean your body. I mean, if you're bald-headed when you get born again, you're going to be bald-headed after you're born again. Unless God just wants to give you some hair. But the old things have passed away. That means the old carnal, selfish life in the spirit and in the soul because I've been made a new creation. All of that stuff has passed away. And everything has become new. Now, all of these things are of God. Now, listen to this. Who has reconciled us to himself. God is the great initiator of salvation. He initiated salvation in that he sent Jesus to pay the price. That was God's doing, and that, re that brought me to reconciliation with God. To reconcile means to be brought to a place of agreement once again. God created Adam, Adam sinned, and mankind was alienated with God. Jesus, the last Adam, came, and he lived a sinless life, and he became God's paschal lamb, perfect without blemish, to pay the price for your sins and my sins and to bring us into newness of life. He has reconciled us to himself. He did it. And he did it through Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? It's bringing people to conciliation with God, just like we were brought into a place of conciliation. Like Isaiah 61, restoring broken people, being restored as a broken person so that we can restore other broken persons. And we have been reconciled to God, and so he puts into our hands the ministry of reconciliation. Many years ago, probably in 75, 76, I saw something. I just saw it as, for me as a Christian. 
I saw it for other Christians. I saw it for other ministers. That if I'm going to, if I'm going to walk in the ministry of reconciliation, I cannot hold people's sins against them. I've got to release them because the reality is, how could God reconcile me to himself? He looked beyond my sin, and he fixed the condition of heart that caused me to sin. So if I'm going to be a minister of reconciliation, I see this person whose behavior is an abomination to God, like my behavior used to be an abomination to God. I see that. And I look beyond that and see in there is a precious person. Too many times in church, we just want people of our kind. Well, God doesn't want people of his kind. God wants to make people into people of his kind by giving them a new heart. And then verse 19. Uh, I, I need to read the last part of 18 and then 19. He's given us the ministry of rec reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ or through the person of Christ reconciling the world to himself. The world. When I was born in 1949, I was born with the reality that God has done a work that will reconcile me to himself. It's already born. Anybody born, the truth is the price has been paid for your sin. And you can walk in a new life. And he did not impute their trespasses to them. That means he did not hold it against them. We deserve to be held against. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. All right, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the word of reconciliation? He tells us right here. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. The word of reconciliation is be reconciled to God. Hearken, hearken, ye people. Your sins have been forgiven because God has done the double for all of your sins. That phrase from Isaiah, double for all your sins, it's this idea. Here's the sin list. Everything I ever did. And so a Hebraism doing the double it means that God folds it over and he tacks it to his cross and says, it's all been done. I have paid double for your sin. That's what God has done for us. So our, the word of reconciliation is, hey, you be reconciled to God. Why? For he, the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is, in Christ. In other words, God makes us right with himself. We don't have to do penance. We don't have to pray 42 Hail Marys. We don't have to pray, uh, not pray, <laughs> pray 42 Our Fathers. We, we repent and believe, and his righteousness is imputed to us. I have right standing with God this morning. If you have trusted in Jesus, repented of your sins, and been born again, you have right standing with God this morning. Now, as we walk in life, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. 
Jesus Christ the righteous. And he says, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So this passage that I just read in 2 Corinthians 5 says that if anyone is in Christ, in Christ is our position, positional truth. I live in Christ. We are born naturally in Adam. We are born again in Christ, the last Adam. What does it mean to be born in Adam? That means that there was a pollution that spread to all the human race because of Adam's sin. And so I'm born that way. And when I meet Christ, my position changes. I'm born again, and now my position is in Christ. And the reality of making this vital is I stop living as though I were in Adam, and I live not as though, but in reality, I am in Christ. God sees me as though I was in Christ. There are so many verses. I couldn't get to them this morning. There's so many verses in the epistles of in him, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And they're so vital to my spiritual health. I'm imperfect. I, I mess up. Uh, you know, I, I don't always do things that are right. If you don't believe me, interview her. <coughs> Our adversary and his minions, his demonic host, are consistently pressing us to live in Adam. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. I think it's accurate. I don't think any of us has ever been in Satan's presence. Satan's not like God. He's not God's opposite. God has no opposite. Satan can only be in one place at a time. God is omnipresent. I said he was omniscient earlier. He knows everything. Well, omnipresent means he's everywhere. Satan cannot be everywhere. He can only be one place at a time. But he has millions, probably, of minions, demonic hosts that tempt us, that speak words into our ears. But I don't think any of us are significant enough that Satan has visited us. But anyway, we're being pressed by the adversary to live in Adam and not live in Christ. And this often happens through the wounding of our souls, which is a part of our heart. My spirit is healthy, but I can be so weighed down in my soul because of wounds. How do the wounds come? Well, they come through being offended. Have you ever been offended? I have. I have. And I want to blame the person who offended me, but I'm responsible to get rid of that. That person may never, ever, ever deal with it. So it comes, wounding comes through being offended. It comes through not dealing with our thought life. If we keep listening to the lies of Satan, that can wound our soul. Wounds can come through choosing to sin. We, we, we sin and we sin and we sin and we sin, and that weighs on the soul. And that sets up a, a stronghold on the inside. And wounding comes through unforgiveness and being set on payback or retaliation. I'm going to invite Bob to come forward. This man is a rank sinner. 
Not really. This is all facetious. Just stand right there. You reprobate, stand right there. Now, here's my list of grievances against Bob. Back before we were both married, he stole my girlfriend. He borrowed my car once, and he brought it back with an empty tank, and it was absolutely filthy. And he never said, I'm sorry. He spent the night at our house a few weeks ago, and the next morning we noticed that two of Nita's diamond bracelets were missing. So guess who suspect number one is? And many years ago, he borrowed $1,000 from me, and he's never mentioned it again or even tried to pay it back. Now, I want to show you what we do to ourselves when we refuse to forgive people. I'm going to show him. I'm going to hold it against him. It's not going to bother me. It's not going to bother me at all. I'm going to hold it against him. I'll go on with my life. It's not going to bother me. It's not going to bother me. Holding this against Bob keeps me bound to Bob. And I can't go anywhere. Everything is filtered through what Bob did to me. I didn't deserve it, Bob. You, you rotten egg, you. How could you have done that? So I have a choice. I have a choice to hold it against him or to drop it. And when I drop it, that's forgiveness. When I drop it, it sets me free. Somebody described, thank you, Bob, you did a great job. Somebody described an unwillingness, an, unwillingness, an unwillingness to forgive, like holding a pistol to your head, pulling the trigger, and expecting the one that did those things against you to drop dead. Unforgiveness binds us. Nita, um, she mentioned this there in Texas where she was ministering. But when she would go into the Congo, it was primarily in the Congo, Congo where she and the others that went would minister to these women who had been horrifically raped. And they knew that one of the keys to these girls being set free, they had to forget, excuse me, they had to forgive. They had to forgive those men who raped them. And you say, well, how could anybody ever do that by the grace of God? Because if they don't forgive, they're bound for life. And see, this is what we do when we, we bind up our hearts and we give wounds in our hearts. We wait for people to apologize. We wait for people to ask us to forgive them. But what if they never apologize? What if they never ask you? to forgive them, then that means you're bound until they do that. What we need to do is we need to forgive freely. That doesn't mean you get restored to that person. They may never see those people that did those heinous things against them. They may never see them again. But for heart health, forgiveness is essential. I forgive. Is it easy? No. It's absolutely impossible without the grace of God. Without the grace of God. So we must guard our hearts. Paul read this last week. I'm going to read it again. Keep your heart with all diligence. 
for out of it spring the issues of life. What does keep mean? It means to guard. It's the exact same word in the Hebrew that God spoke to Adam when he created the garden and set him in the garden. He said, keep it. The word keep means guard. Adam did not keep the garden. He did not guard the garden, so he lost his dominion in the garden. God tells us, tells us to keep or guard our hearts. And that means he's given us dominion over our hearts. When he says keep or guard your heart, that means I have dominion over my heart. And I can cast these things out. I can forgive. I can release people. I can drop the offense. If we don't keep or guard them, then we lose the heart and dominion that God has given us. One of the things that is so imperative that we learn to do is stop blaming people for my weaknesses. Stop blaming people for what I haven't done and begin to obey God. And as I do that, I mean, it was amazing. We witnessed it as Nita would minister and the other people would minister to these ladies. When they were brought, they were never forced to forgive anybody. They brought revelation to them of how forgiveness sets us free. And just by the very act of forgiveness, many of those women begin to experience wholeness of heart because they got that stone that was there. Now, it says, keep your heart with all diligence. The Hebrew there literally means above all keeping. In other words, above everything else. Above all your guarding, guard your heart. Guard your heart. The Christian Standard Bible says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. The, contem the contemporary English version says, carefully guard your thoughts, because they're the source of true life. And then the Douay Reigns uh, translation says, with all watchfulness, keep your heart, because life proceeds out from it. Jesus showed us how. Paul mentioned it last week. Jesus showed us how. He was in the garden of, not a garden, but the mount of temptation. He had been baptized at the Jordan. The Holy Spirit had come upon him. He went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. And after 40 days, Satan came to him with temptation after temptation after temptation. And what did Jesus do? He didn't say, no, you can't do that to me. I'm the son of God. He didn't say that. He said, it is written. He spoke God's word against what Satan spoke to him. And that is our example for how to deal. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, I learned this passage back in 1972 or 3. I was in college. Nita was a nurse. She worked the night shift, not, I guess it was 4 to 12. So I would be home studying. And this began to happen. I would... I would be sitting there at my table, studying my desk, and thoughts would start coming. Nita's at work, I'm at home, and the thoughts would come, you're going to die. Well, I wasn't afraid to die. I was a baby Christian excited so much about Jesus. But the thoughts kept coming, you're going to die. 
And I didn't want Nita to come home and find me dead. So what did I do? Seemed rational at the time. I packed up all my books and drove down to the university library to study. So if I'm going to die, it's going to be somebody besides Nita that finds me dead. And so what happened was I had met a man in Detroit back in January of 1974. He had prayed for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I had not seen him again. Um, no, it was not 1974. It was 1972. I had not seen him, but I had his number, and I called him and told him what battle I was having. He gave me these verses. Changed my life. Verse 3, For although we live in physical bodies, we do not wage war in a physical way. For the weapons of our warfare... Did you know you got weapons? Did you know you got warfare? Paul said in Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of might and put on the whole armor of God because we're not wrestling against humans. We're wrestling against principalities, against powers, against the uh, wickedness of this evil world. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or natural, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What's a stronghold? A stronghold is a thought that gets a stronghold on us. We have to deal with that thought. And how do we deal with it? Listen. We cast down arguments. Other translation says imaginations. The first four letters of imagination is images. You can be tempted. You can be given fear through pictures. You can have imaginations. But this has arguments. Satan wants to argue with you. And we cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How do you bring every thought captive? You say, no, that's a lie. I trust truth. I speak to you, Satan. I speak to you, demons. I speak to you, lies. And say, I will not listen to you. I will trust the living God. Now, when I first started doing this, I felt foolish. Because here I am by myself, and I'm talking to somebody that I can't see. But I'm telling you, we must break out of our timidity and deal with it. This is key to getting our hearts whole. I want to begin to close with this, and key word is not begin, the key word is close. <laughs> Ultimately, Satan wants all of us to stop living by faith and to walk away from God. That's what he's after. And the Hebrews 3, verse 12, just one verse. New King James says, Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The Passion Translation reads this way. Search your hearts every day, my brothers and sisters, and make sure that none of you has evil or unbelief hiding within you, for it will lead you astray and make you unresponsive to the living God. There's a difference between unbelief and doubt. We all have doubts come against us. But unbelief is described as an evil that's in the heart. Unbelief, it's interesting, the word in the Greek for faith is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. And the Greek word for unbelief is apistia. It's got the prefix ah. Ah means away from. So we live by faith, but unbelief is moving us away from faith. We're moving by sight. 
we're doubting God. Unbelief is what, what destroyed Adam and Eve because Satan came with this lie. Has God said? Has God really said? Faith comes by hearing what God says. Unbelief grows by doubting what God says. So it's more than just doubts. 